I want to speak on the subject, the cure. The cure. Now, normally you stand at the reading of the Word, but because I'm seated, I'll have you to be seated. But Second uh, Chronicles seven fourteen. this is a scripture that uh, was given to Solomon, a commandment given to Solomon from the Lord. This was the Lord's promise to Solomon as he finished the house of the Lord. Uh, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, and will, will, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now this is the cure for a backslidden condition. And I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk a whole lot about uh, backsliding as, that is, the specifics of it as, as much as uh, some of the, the general problems related to this. Uh, the extreme difficulty uh, of a person turning around once a person has gone astray uh, makes it nigh impossible for a person to come back to God once he has known the Lord in, in the power of victory. Unless the individual leaves the church and is gone for an extended period of time, all of which, when that occurs, the probability of coming back might even be slimmer. Now, I may not be making much sense in this, but it's just near impossible for a person to turn around, I've got a lot of ring on this. Can you hear that? Are you hearing that also? You're not hearing it. Maybe uh, we need to turn a monitor down up here just a little bit, Brother Charlie. Uh, it's it's near impossible for a person on their own to just wake up one day and say, "Hey, I'm 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 letting some things slip," and just go back and do something about it. Now, we do have scripture of that happening in, in Luke, the 15th chapter. And, of course, it happened only after a great, great uh, problem came to the prodigal son, Luke 15. Um, this is the parable of the lost son. A certain man had two sons. That's Luke 15, 11. And the younger of them said unto his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. And not many days after the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there he wasted his substance on riotous living. Now, you've heard me make this statement many times, especially if you've been through Christian stewardship. I continue to make it on tape uh, to all the people who are are in the room, but you you constantly hear me make the statement that that any time you want to to go and demand from God those things that you gave up at conversion, you can just simply do that. In other words, you can start managing your life again separate and apart from the principles of, of the Lord. 
However, the problem is that when you do this, you kind of cut off the hand that feeds you because there's no continual supply coming in. And that's what happened. The prodigal just said, give me the portion of goods that, that is mine. Now, we can be Pentecostal prodigals and never leave the church. We normally think of someone as a prodigal that just, you know, just gets fed up with whatever, you know, and leaves. You, you hear that all the time. Well, I just kind of got fed up with everything. I remember a sister telling me that. She said, you know, I'm just fed up with everything. I said, I don't understand what you're talking about, fed up with everything. Well, just the church. Well, I thought maybe I'd jump the gun on a little bit. I said, well, we're kind of fed up with you, too. You know, this is kind of a two-way street. You know? <laughs> maybe it would be good for you to just leave for a while. I mean, if you're going to live like the devil, why don't you go out there where the devil and all of his servants are? Just get out there. You know, and I've often said this, you know, if you if you like fussing and fighting and bickering and complaining and gossiping and all that, well, then there's the world. It's out there. But please don't come into the church and use the church to wipe your dirty feet on. And we're involved in something that has a little bit of a higher calling than that. You understand what I'm saying? So, some people just get fed up. Okay, she was fed up. But you know, you might run into a situation where there is no feed. In other words, everything runs out. And that's what happened. Hardship really set in on the prodigal son. And the Bible tells us in verse 17, He came to Himself. In other words, just a number of circumstances or situations caused the prodigal to come to himself. But this is not usually the case. Usually when people backslide or they drop their convictions, and convictions are dropped one or two at a time, till after a while the, the believer doesn't believe much of anything. And and then it usually takes some outside help. Maybe a brother or a sister or a father or a mother or a pastor. Maybe a Sunday school teacher. It usually takes some a friend or someone to come to you and say, Look, now you have been sliding. And I am very, very much concerned, and I would like to help you. The problem is that when people slide, quite often they don't understand that this is happening to them. They just don't understand it. And you can read the Bible about Israel in the Old Testament and how she uh, backslid. And sometimes we think it just happened overnight. Well... Uh, not necessarily because some of the kings, like Solomon, David reigned for 40 years. Saul reigned for 40 years. Solomon reigned for 40 years. So you have 120 years. And when you back up the calendar from 1996, 120 years ago, you know, you're going way back past the turn of the century into the almost the mid-1800s. So we're getting way back there. So when the Bible talks about Israel going astray, it didn't it doesn't mean that 
that she just went astray maybe the next day after she had a great revival. Now, there are cases in which that, that did take place. But I think that the reason why that, that this is so important for us to talk about is because, you know, I, I keep hearing things, and I hear things among our congregation. Now, let me, let me just explain one thing that I hear quite often. People say, well, I don't have a conviction against this. Now, <clears throat> the way I want to address this is I'd like to just ask you, go to the Bible and find this business about conviction in the Bible. You may say, oh, but, well, in the Bible, it's, 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 it's you observe the commandments of the Lord. In other words, it doesn't make a difference whether you have a conviction or not. If there, is a, if there is an acceptable line of logic that fits the commandment of God relative to the violation on your part, it doesn't make a difference whether you have a conviction or not. You're held accountable. And you know the reason why that this is so necessary for you to understand? Because when you grow cold in God, you don't have convictions. You simply don't. So say, ah, no conviction. And then another thing that you hear a lot of, and, and, and you know, the, I preached on separation. I heard several ladies make this statement. How come Brother Grant always picks on the ladies? Well, since when are the commandments of God to be considered by someone that's on fire as being picked on? If I want to say I mean, to feel, to feel that, that, that the commandments of God, you know, let's say that in the Bible there's as much to say about holding the standard for men as there are ladies, which obviously, if you read the Bible, there isn't. No, there just simply isn't. Now, you say whatever you want to. I challenge you. You cannot find as much in the Bible concerning a man's attire as you do a lady's attire. That's just not there. Now, it's there, but not as much in volume-wise. Okay? But let's say, let's say that, that there was more to do in the Bible about holiness standards that dealt with a, a man than a woman. And let's say the pastor got up and he preached about, about uh, let's say, things that some of the, the ladies ought to do. It, it's still does not make a whole lot of sense to say, well, we got picked on tonight. I mean, if you're following Scripture, see, the, the Bible says that the commandments of God are not grievous. But what, you, what you're doing is that you're lowering, some, lowering something as precious as a scriptural principle that governs your life you're lowering it to the point that you feel that, well, God, just picking on me. Well, and one thing that kind of bothered me when, when we started our, our Tuesday night, Wednesday night uh, sectional services, in, in which uh, this was my idea to start with. Brother Manley's been implementing this, but we're 
trying our best. And we said after the first of the year, when we have the sectional service, that the, per, the people involved in the sectional service does not have to feel that they should attend the Thursday night service. But then what happened was that several people came around and said, you mean I have to come to church again on Thursday night? Now, that just kind of bothered me. It kind of struck me kind of wrong, you know. Now, maybe the intent by all the people who asked the question was not the way I read it. I'm positive that I, I, I misread a couple of people. But nevertheless, you know, to say, you mean I have to do this? I, I just, you know, in other words, there are certain symptoms that certainly pinpoint spiritual problems. Do you follow what I'm saying? And I think to say, well, I don't have convictions. Why is a preacher always picking on the ladies or the men or whatever, you know? Could be the young people. You mean I have to come to church another night? I think that all of those are symptoms of something that's taking place inside of an individual that's not altogether healthy. Now, some of you have really lost, just plain lost the joy of serving God. Now, some of you still have it after many, many years. We visit with Sister Rowe today, and I... Sister Rowe wants to come to church. Her family and her boys just don't want her to come. She has fallen several times, and she has only known one speed all of her life, and that's full speed ahead. But she said, I just miss church, Brother Grant. I just miss church. because we all miss her. But Sister Rowe went for years and years and years, and she was never sick, and she never missed a service. And one time she missed, and she called me up and said, Brother Grant, this is the first church service I have missed, and she told me how many years. I was amazed. Then we had someone recently for Brother Tanberg's church over in Eau Claire, and they were in service with us. They came for our baby dedication when Fred and Michelle dedicated uh, their baby. And this brother and sister came up, and they had a little blank piece of paper here, uh, and it looked blank to me, and they handed it and said, we want you to sign this. Well, there was no, what am I supposed to sign? Well, on the other side, there was a little statement. And, and, and what it was, they said, we have not missed church. And I don't know how long and, and our pastor rewards people for perfect attendance. And we want you to sign this so we can take it back to Brother Tanberg and say, Brother Tanberg, we were in church. Calvary Gospel Church. And we want our certificate for perfect attendance. I don't know how many years this sister said, but it's, it seems to me like she said they hadn't missed in two or three years. You know, just we haven't missed a service. Not one service. Now, what I want to do is talk a little bit about the Old Testament revivals. Uh, we talk about the cure. 
Now, I realize that, that, that a person can just, you know, come to themselves and someplace along life road, they can just kneel down and pray. But normally, and it was true also in the prodigal son situation, where there had to be an extreme situation to set in that altered his way of thinking. This, this man knew he was, in, he was in trouble. Isn't it a shame that we have to get so low that we almost, you know, reach up to touch bottom? You know, you would just think that intelligent people like all of us are, that, that all we have to do is just say, hey, I'm not praying the way I always have prayed. I'm not seeking God the way I've sought God. So what I need to do is just uh, readjust, and we just simply make the adjustment and get with it. It's not the case, though. Now, Israel, in the Old Testament, you read about Judah and you read about Israel. And, of course, this, the two nations came about as a result of a civil war. Now, we'll back up. The first king of Israel was, was King Saul. He reigned for 40 years. He was chosen by the Lord to meet the cry and the demands of the people. Never was God's intention for them to have a king. But they wanted a king, the Bible says, because they wanted to be like everybody else. Now, you really do have to watch when you want to be like everybody else. You know. Really. And, and I hear so often the young people say, well, I want to be different. Well, if you want to be different, be a Christian. <clears throat> I mean, your colors will really fly if you want to be a Christian, if you want to be different. But King Saul reigned for 40 years, and of course... Uh, this man was eaten up with jealousy and a lot of different things. He, it went to his head. He was a humble man when he was chosen. David was anointed the king. David was a great man. David fell into sin, which leads me to believe one thing, that God will never go to any extent to cover up the sin of anyone. Now, you, may be able, you may be successful in hiding it for a while, but eventually it will come out in the open. And, and it did. Uh, David had an affair with Bathsheba. She bore a son. This child was born dead. Uh, to David's household, there was, there was so much grief and trouble that came as a result of, of a few things that he let slip. Now, he was noted in the Scriptures as a man after God's own heart. But you have to understand that a lot of David's psalms were written in the twilight years of his life, the, the sunset years of his life. Psalm 23, for an example, was written just before David died. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When he finally came to himself, but you know, David could not come to himself by himself. It took a real shocking experience when Nathan the prophet walked in and told him a story about a man who had a little ewe lamb. And David then pronounced judgment upon this man and said, This man is worthy of death. Show me the man and I'll go kill him. And Nathan the prophet looked at him and said, David, thou art the man. And he turned and walked away. And it shook David to the core. But David had planted some seeds. His own son Absalom 
rebelled against his leadership. You know, the, the horrible story of Absalom's death. How in a, a real skirmish with his father and trying to take over the kingdom, he ran underneath a low-hanging branch on his, on his horse and his hair got caught in this and, and was twisted up in the limb and the horse kept going. And then his brother Amon went into his sister sister's bedroom and raped her. But there was a lot of things that happened in David's life as a result of just him backsliding. Now, I don't know why God has spoken to me so strongly about this, but I'll tell you, God has really talked to me about just laying everything on the table, so to speak. <laughs> because when, when, when you know God in great victory, and you back off, and you become relaxed, you open a floodgate, and things begin to come in, and your lack of consecration will, will let things happen, and after a while you'll be doing things that, that you just never one time thought you would do. Well, David, David lived a very fruitful and, and long life. He reigned 40 years. He collected all the wealth of the building of the temple. And Solomon, his son, became king of Israel. Now, you can read about this in, in second, uh, first Chronicles, second Chronicles, pardon me, and also in, I think it's Second Kings. But uh, Solomon, Solomon sought the Lord for great wisdom. Uh, as you no doubt know, uh, Solomon had a brother that thought he should inherit the throne. He was in, he was in Egypt because of the, the wrath of, uh, of, of his father and such. And, and of course he came back and, and he, he, uh, uh, Solomon, uh, Solomon just, in the 40 years in which Solomon lived, there was total peace in the land. They never, they never had one battle. But the problem is, in this, in this period of peace, they weren't fighting anything. They weren't resisting evil. Solomon had 700 wives and 300 mistresses. Can you? A, a thousand. Now you think about that. A thousand. I'm sure that Sister Hicks could say, well, all those ladies, they only had one. <laughs> he was enough. <laughs> oh. <clears throat> well, I'll tell you. But you know what? He, he went out. He, he married. He actually married pagan women. Now, he did that. And he allowed those ladies to come in, and they brought their idols in, and they set up groves throughout Israel. And they worshipped idols. And God was not pleased with it. Now, what is happening here in, in Second Chronicles when, when Solomon built the temple? See, this is, this is a great warning in, in Second Chronicles uh, 7, if you will back up in Second Chronicles 
7, you, you will see that. Actually, if you go to, to, to chapter 6, uh, verse, let's say verse 24, If thy people Israel be put to the worst before the enemy, because they have sinned against thee, and shall return and confess thy name, and pray and make supplication before thee in the house, then hear thou from the heavens and forgive the sin of the people. And if you read on down through there, you, you find that God talks about great pestilence that will come and 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 a, a drought in the land and and things will not not go well with them because because of their sin. And and, and we know that they, they did go into idolatry. They went into great idolatry. And so as a result, uh, every revival that we find in the Bible started with the principles that I want to cover here tonight. Every revival. There is not one revival in the Bible that actually started with evangelism. Now, we like to think that revival always starts with evangelism. According to Scripture, that's not true. Revival always starts with the purification of God's people. That's how it always starts. The only Gentile revival in the Old Testament was at Nineveh. And it came about as a result of one man having purified himself. And, and, and he didn't really want to do this. God kind of forced him into it. He was swallowed by this whale of a fish. Somebody said it wasn't a whale. It was just a big fish. I said, well, if it wasn't, it was a whale of a fish. <clears throat> but he was swallowed by this big fish. And he went and preached. That's the only Gentile revival of the Old Testament. But when we get into the household of Israel, we find certain things that happened. Now, you may say, how does all this apply to us in the New Testament? Well, if you go to the book of Colossians, we want to talk about idolatry just for a moment. First, first uh, pardon me, not first, first anything. Colossians, Colossians 3, 5. This table is not good for me. I feel too casual up here. Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Now, let me read this from the New English, uh, the New International Version. Pardon me. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Now, isn't it amazing that, that almost without exception, somewhere in idol worship, sex always becomes a great big thing? Go check into all the, the worship of idols, and it becomes, a, it becomes a, a major part of it. Because idolatry basically is built around inordinate affections. Now, you can build a, an idol out of wood and, and set it up and worship that. But, but, you know, you go back into heathen practices of idolatry, and many of those, they, they contained all kinds of sexual acts and such. Well, see, when Paul gets in the New Testament, he, he just blanks out the idol itself and talks about idolatry 
and the end result of it, which is immorality. And I think that's something that, that, that we just really do need to consider. Now, there's one thing that I want to call your attention to, if you'll just continue to read with me. Verse 6 of Colossians 3, For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. Now, I have carefully studied the New Testament. I am convinced of this. As far as the church is concerned, what hinders the growth of the church is never the devil. It's always the children of disobedience. Satan does his greatest work on the planet Earth through the children of disobedience. In other words, if you are not an on-fire Christian, how many people will not make it to heaven as a result of your waywardness? Have you ever thought about that? Now, you know, you think about what if Pastor Grant just all of a sudden just backslid? Preachers have done this, you know. Now, you think about... You know, you think, there are times when I feel I'm not affecting anyone's life. I'm not doing anything for God. I'm not affecting hardly anything. But let me backslide, and all of a sudden, it just, it just, it pops up. Hey, you are affecting a lot of people. And because you're no longer there to witness them, this becomes a stumbling stone to a lot of people. A stumbling stone to a, to a lot of people. So Satan does his greatest work among the children of disobedience. Now, let's go to the Old Testament revivals. We'll not have time to, to look at all of these, but I'm just going to call out some. Of course, when, when, when uh, Rehoboam, uh, the son of uh, Solomon, came back to, to, take, to take the king kingdom, uh, it had been prophesied that that Jeroboam, the servant of Solomon, would become king. And for, for a moment, it looked as if Rehoboam was going, to, was going to, to keep the kingdom together, and he was the rightful heir except for the prophecy of God. In other words, it was a man you'd think would, would, have, would have taken the throne. Well, uh, what happened was that, that Solomon, because of all the wealth of Israel and such, uh, and, and because the people were heavily taxed, uh, the, the question came up, said, now we've changed kings. You think we ought to be taxing the people the way we are? And, of course, uh, the Bible tells us that Rehoboam, instead of consulting the elders, he went and consulted the young man. Now, the elders gave him advice and said, oh, said uh, uh, Solomon taxed us heavily. You shouldn't be doing this. But, but the Bible says, well, what happened was that he just ignored the voice and what he did was, he came back to Israel and he said, Well, you know how uh, my father taxed you? You were so heavily burdened. He, he said, The burden, but the, the comparison will be between, you see my finger? This represents Solomon's taxation. You see my thigh? He said, This represents my taxation. That's what he was going to do. Well, at any rate, there was a big civil war, and uh, the kingdom split. So when you read in the Old Testament 
the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, you read about Judah and you read about Israel. Israel was the twelve northern tribes, ten northern tribes. Judah was the two southern tribes. Judah, however, maintained the place of worship in the house of God, which was Jerusalem. And this seemed to take her intact. Of all of the kings of, of Israel, not one of them, not one of them was righteous and led, led them to revival. Now, in Judah, a few did. And those are the few that, that, that I want to make mention of. Maybe not all of them, but, but some of them. Uh, we, we, we did talk about the Gentile revival, which is separate and apart and, uh, from uh, the revival that was brought about by the kings. But in the Old Testament, there's Asa. Uh, Asa was, uh, what, uh, grandson of Solomon, I guess it was. But there was, there was Asa, and, uh, and then there was Josiah, Hezekiah, Jehoshaphat. Now, let me just point out what they did. What they did. The Bible tells us that they always destroyed the groves, they tore down the high places, they tore down the altars, they tore down the idols, they, they burned all the uh, arts and, and works of magic, they destroyed all the acts of superstition, they ran out the witches and killed them, and they destroyed all the sodomites. Now these are, you'll have to read the account of all of them. We certainly don't have time to go into all that. But, but you can see what they were doing. Now, the thing about it is, when, when, when a king would come to the throne, let's just talk about Asa, because the word Asa actually means the cure. That's what it means. The cure. Now, Asa, when Asa came to the throne... Asa's grandmother was considered the queen of Judah. She was the queen mother, so to speak. And the thing about Asa's grandmother was that she was an idol worshiper. Now, Asa, Asa rather, Asa, <laughs> sounds like a lady's name, doesn't it? Asa, had to confront his grandmother. Now, the Bible calls her his mother, but if you, if you look at the genealogy, it was actually his grandmother. Now, he's got a monumental job because he's got to deal with his own kindred. And you know what happens when families backslide? You might get father to agree that we need to get closer, but you've got to get mother and all the children to agree. And what happens is you let your household slide, and whoever's responsible for revival, and that would be the person that realizes we're sliding, has a monumental job because they have to deal with their own household. Let me tell you something. That is a job. You're talking about a job. And this man had to deal first with his family. The Bible says that he went to his grandmother or his mother. And the Bible says that he... Now he's going to have to dethrone her. Take her off the throne. You cannot be the queen of Israel if you are an idolater. But the problem is, there are people all around her that... 
that she's influenced. So she's, she's not standing alone in this matter. And you know, sometimes one of the hardest things, even for pastors to correct, is to correct a problem with one saint that has a whole lot of followers. And let me tell you, I don't care what a saint will stoop to, there's always some sympathizers. Some people that will gather around them, and we're the support group, see? We're giving them the help. But if a person has fallen into sin, the support group they need would be found around an altar someplace. That's the kind of support group they need. They don't need someone that says, oh, I understand, yes. And I know that Jesus loves and you know. And you always hear this. Regardless of what someone's done, it's always mercy, and it's always grace. Now listen to me. Now I believe in mercy or grace. None of us would be here. If not, but don't take the Scripture out of context to make it fit your sin. You can't do that. You will not survive spiritually. Asa had to deal with his grandmother, and he had the monumental task of dethroning this woman. You're talking about splitting his family right down the middle. But he had to do it. He simply had to do it. He didn't have any other choice. And then, of course, he set to destroy the groves, the altars, the idols. They were burning the incense. He destroyed all that. The Bible says that that Asa was perfect in his reign. But then it does put in a little clause, and the little clause states, however, he failed to destroy the high places. Now, the high places represent the real strongholds of idolatry. You know, it would be like like the, the, the major temple, and, and we've got all the small temples around, so we, we will destroy all these. Now, let me go back to the thought that, that I had uh, given you to start with. It is almost impossible when people have drifted so far to get the people to understand that they need to turn around. And there has to be a strong voice of authority that the people recognize and revere, and maybe I should say even fear, and they have to say, well, I guess if I have to do this, I have to do this. This is the reason why that, that, that you need to pray constantly for your pastor, that your pastor will be strong enough to stand up against any one person who would want to turn the church over to the world. I covet your prayers. I need your prayers. But you see, after a while, a good number of people, you know, can get together and they're all kind of hoping the other way. Wish Brother Grant would just let us do more, you know. Wish he'd just kind of open the gap. Just let us out and let us go and do what we want to do. Now, I have written down five things that I feel is necessary in order for this church not to become involved in a backsliding situation. Now, this would also be true of any individual, and it would be true of any home. Number one, 
the spiritual leader, and of course you're responsible for yourself, so you need to take these as, as personally as you possibly can. The spiritual leader must be 100% dedicated to God and His Word. In other words, what value do you place on God? Now, you don't fear God when you do not value, highly value God. How much authority do you feel the Word of the Lord should have in your life? So he must be 100% dedicated to God and His Word. Number two. He must not be impressed by worldly accomplishments of people who are non-Christian. Now, this is extremely important. Now, I know the Packers are playing a playoff game on Sunday. But you know, you know, what, you know what happens sometimes? I'm, I'm serious with you. It's easy for our kids to get so caught up in this that they can't even worship. Now listen to me. Now, now listen to me. I am not saying that I think that it's totally wrong for you to know what's going on out there in the world. But I am saying that there, there has to be a person who is in tune with God to the point that it doesn't make any difference what happens or what does not happen out in the world out there. That he is unaffected by the progress and success of unchristian people. He has to be. See, Israel wanted a king. Why? So we'd be like everybody else. That was not God's plan for Israel. And she got herself in a heap of trouble because she wanted to be like everybody else. And isn't it true that the majority of the problems we have with our young people is that they've set, they've set idols out there someplace in the world. They want to be like this great basketball player or this great football player or this great person. And very few of them want to be like some preacher someplace. Very few of them want to be like some prophet of the Old Testament. Did you know that, that the kings of the Old Testament that brought revival and the prophets that brought, brought revival quite often led very lonely lives because they were misunderstood by the people? Read about it. Jeremiah was placed down in a pit where the mire came up to his neck. He was so misunderstood by the people. Why was he doing that? Because he was crying out about the very things that Asa Asa destroyed. Why could Asa do it, get by? Because he was a king. And he had the whole army behind him. But the prophet was kind of out there alone. He cried and prophesied and prophesied even to the kings. But these people sometimes led very lonely lives because they were misunderstood. And, and, and let, me, let me just point this out to our young people. Listen to me very carefully. You don't know the parents that I've counseled with over the years that come in, and they were so heartbroken. And this is what they'd always say. If my children just really understood what I'm trying to do for them, 
I feel so lonely. It's like they just gang up against me. Well, how come I can't do this? Because everybody else does it, and so-and-so does it over in this church, and so-and-so does it over in that church, and, and you know, brother so-and-so's daughter does this, and brother so-and-so's son does this, and how come I can't do this? I, I, with tears, I've sat there to try to comfort parents and say, you've got to be strong. But it's lonely, Brother Grant, because they don't understand. So you have to understand this, that all of us are in this world, but we are not of this world. But if this church has revival like this church needs to have revival, and like this church will have revival before the rapture, this church is going to have to stay in tune with God. And we're going to have to forget about the world and the things that are out in the world. And we have to let the world pass. We sing courses about it, but sometimes we're not willing to do it. We testify about it, but sometimes we're not willing to do it. So the man of God must not be impressed by worldly accomplishments of others. Number three, the man of God must not yield to the pressure of people, both He was to be a special vessel, a chosen vessel to the Gentiles. And God says, I will remove a fear of the people from thee, Saul. You talk about a fearless man. Now, he was full of compassion. He was full of love. But he was not influenced by people. So we must not yield to the pressure of people, both people that are in the church and those that are out. Now, number four, and this is a very important one. If the man of God becomes disoriented himself, that is, confused on an issue, he must seek counsel only with the elders. Do you hear me? If the man of God becomes disoriented, I'm using the word man of God, but this would be true of a parent, a single parent, where uh, maybe a lady, a sister in the church. This would be true of a, any sister in the church teaching a class, involved in, in, in any type of leadership. If you become disoriented, you must seek counsel only with your elders. In other words, don't go to somebody that's possibly having the same problem you're having. You know, if a man be overtaken in a fault, Paul, Paul gives us this principle. We should restore such a one. But the Bible says, He that is spiritual restore, restore such a one, lest he fall into the same temptation. In other words, let's say that someone has fallen into adultery, and, and they have sinned, and, and you feel that your mission in life to go help them. And so, while you're helping them, they're telling you all about these things. And then all of a sudden... The same thing that got a hold of them that enticed them gets a hold of you. And you fall into the same trap. Now, that's happened before. You heard Brother Urshan telling the story about the little little boy praying at the altar at Indianapolis. There's a singles convention. Somebody went out on the street, brought this man in. This man came in, and when Brother Urshan finished preaching, he just came right down to the altar. This gentleman did. and was praying. Well, here was this little bitty boy 
about eight, nine years old, came with his father. And so he saw that nobody was praying with this, this man, so he got over there with him. Of course, it's a singles convention, and most of the focus, you know, is, is on the people, you know, much younger than this man, who was obviously, you know, 55, 60 years old. So this little boy went over and started praying with him, and, he, and, and, and the man didn't know what to do. He said, ask God to forgive you of all your sins. That's what the little boy said. And the little boy, the man looked and said, but, but, but son, I, I, I really don't know. I, I, I just don't. I really don't know what sin is. He said, well, you're a sinner. The Bible says you're a sinner. He said, tell the Lord you're a sinner. And he said, I'm a sinner, Lord. I'm a sinner. The little boy said, do you, uh, do you drink? And uh, the man said, oh, yes, I, I, I drink. Well, that's a sin. And, tell the Lord you won't drink anymore. So the man said, I'm a sinner, Lord, and I don't want to drink anymore. Now, this actually happened, you know. He said, do you smoke dope? And the man said, yes. He said, well, you should be smoking dope. Tell the Lord, uh, you're not going to smoke dope anymore. And the man said, I'm a sinner, Lord, I'm not going to smoke dope anymore. He said, well, do you, do you go to bars? Do you have a girlfriend? Yes. Well, tell the Lord, that's a sin. And so the man said, I'm a sinner, Lord, and I promise you I won't do this anymore. He said, do you go to the movies? And the man said, yes. He said, well, tell the Lord. And, and, and finally the little boy got down and said, do you watch television? And, and, and the man said, yes. And he said, do you watch television? And, and the man said, yes. He said, and you go to movies? He said, yeah. The little boy says, I wish I was a sinner. <laughs> so he who is spiritually towards such a one. Let's he fall into the same temptation. <laughs> I just wish I was a sinner. Wish I could do all those things. But if you become disoriented, and by that I mean if you're confused about something, who should you seek advice from? Your elders. Pick out someone that's, that's spiritual and go to them. Seek advice. Number five, you must keep yourself unspotted from the world. In other words, how 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 conscious you are of what everybody else is doing? Are you just chasing around for everything that's out in the world? Now if you don't maintain a line of separation, you know what's going to happen. There's going to be that mixing together, blending together. You're going to be like be like the Israelites. See. And I guess, you know, all of us on occasion, we ask ourselves, you know, is this wrong? Should I be doing this? Some people say, well, I don't, I'm not convicted. Well, since when has that become Bible language? Just just read in the Bible. You, you, don't, find, you don't find men of God... And, and even the Scripture talking about that. I can prove according to the Scripture that you can't trust your mind, you can't trust your heart, and you can't trust your feelings. You may say, well, then who can you trust? God and His Word. And the reason why that I feel right now so heavy about what I'm talking about is because if there's one person here that is wayward in their thinking, 
in all probability you will continue that way until something drastic happens. And most of the time, you cannot change on your own. You have to find someone that you trust enough that they will, and they will be brave enough and bold enough to give you godly advice and help you. Now, the four conditions that bring about revival, I've got to hasten. The four conditions that bring about revival. If my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves. Number one, God's people must humble themselves. Now, I realize that humility, in its truest sense, cannot be separated from repentance. In other words, when you, when you repent, you actually humble yourselves. But basically, in humility, we're saying God's people must recognize their failures. They must manifest sorrow for their sin. They must renew their commitment to God's will. And humbling themselves before God and His Word means that we recognize God's authority over us and that we're living in spiritual poverty. We are rich when we follow the commandments of the Lord. Number two, we're talking about the cure now. We must pray. God's people must cry out to Him in desperation for mercy and most completely depend, and must completely depend upon Him and trust Him for His intervention. Can you make it on your own? You cannot make it on your own. There's no way you can make it on your own. You know what happens? Sometimes you can come to a mental concept or, or mental awareness, and you say, oh, I'm backsliding. I need to do something. You say, oh, God, I'm backsliding. I need to do something. But I'm talking about getting desperate before God. I'm at laying it on the line. I'm at praying. Going in and saying, God, I'm slipping. I'm sliding. I'm on my way to hell. And I need to do something about this. Get a hold of me, God. Shake me like a horse running on concrete. Like a thousand buffaloes running across the prairie. Move me, O God, and shake me and get a hold of me, O God. Stir me within. Now, we're having a revival prayer meeting Saturday night. We're going to come in here and we're going to pray. We're going to pray earnestly before God. I will assure you of this one thing. We talk about the cure. But if you pray this way, and you pray this way often, you won't catch yourself in some of the situations that, that I'm making reference to tonight. Number three, and seek my face. God's people must diligently turn to God. And with their whole heart, they must long to be in the presence of God. Now, let me tell you what happens. You see, when disasters come, drought, pestilence and such, in the Old Testament. You know, every now and then we'll have a, we'll have a family in the church that's really suffering. We've had some people that's really suffered. And, and, and we have... We've pitched in. We've helped a lot of these people. And, and you know, it's, and, and we want to do everything we can. But what if, you know, but, but, but what, my whole point is that what if all of us were in a situation where we couldn't help each other? I mean, we couldn't do a thing. Now, we're looking at a physical condition, but there are churches out there, my friend, where everybody is in poverty. 
I'm talking about spiritual poverty, where nobody can help each other. And you go to some of these third world countries where people are literally dying. They can't help each other. I mean, there they are. And it is easy then to understand why great revival comes because these people, in order to just to sustain life, living, they've got to stay in the presence of God. They feel some comfort and safety there. But if somehow we could feel that same comfort and that same need when we're seeking God, I wonder how many people we'd see filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. I need your presence, O oh God. I need your power, O oh God. I need you, O oh Lord. Oh God, O oh God, O oh God. Praise God. We need that element. We need that element. And then, of course, the last thing, turn from their wicked ways. God's people must genuinely turn from all forms of idolatry, greed, and lust, and selfishness. They must renounce the world and draw near to God and seek His mercy. Then what's going to happen? Then will I hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. Oh, God. Four conditions that bring revival. Humble yourself. Pray. Seek God's face. Turn from every wicked way. Praise God. I'd like for you to just bow your heads with me, would you, right now? Oh, Lord of heaven, move among us. For right here, Lord Jesus, in the four walls of this building, we have people that need to seek your face tonight. And while all the prophecy of both the Old and the New Testament is being fulfilled, right before our very eyes, people are blinded. And you're soon to return. And I'm asking right now, God, that you touch these people. We have young people here, Lord, that have gone wayward and astray. Would you touch them, oh God? For Lord Jesus, if the rapture took place this very night, tomorrow there would be weeping and wailing and bitter disappointment over the few little old things that kept that kept us out of the rapture. So Lord, talk to us right now and quicken our hearts. Prick us, Lord Jesus, to the very core, we pray. In Jesus' name. Praise God. Sister Pamela, Sister Grant, and our praise singers, if you would come. And while they're coming, if we have one person that would like to seek the Lord, why don't you get up and come on down to the front and just kneel here. Let's kneel and let's get a hold of God. Oh, Savior. God in your name, in your name. I 
love you, God. I worship you, Lord. I praise you, oh God. Jesus, you're rich and real. Come on right now. Come on. Do we have a guest that would like to come give their heart to the Lord? Would you like to come and give your heart to the Lord? Our guest, would you like to come? Just come on, kneel and pray with these people. Oh, Savior, Lord. We love you, God. We worship you, God. Come nearer, nearer, blessed Lord, to the cross where